We hear a lot about science today. We hear trust the science. We hear people say, I only believe what I can see and prove. The Bible and the Christian faith are typically discounted because they're just wishful thinking. It's just fuzzy, nice ideas. But it really can't be proven, can it? For all of these criticisms, there are sure still a lot of people who believe in lots of things that they can't see or prove. How many of you came to church this morning in some kind of motorized vehicle? You didn't walk or ride your horse? How many of you inspected the brake system before you got in your car? How many checked all of the fluid levels and made sure that everything was functioning perfectly? Did you know you took a leap of faith by getting into your car, starting the engine, and driving here today? That took faith. You had to believe that it was going to work the way it worked the last time you got into it. How about the place you're sitting right now? Did any of you check the weight capacity of the bench? Did you check to see if there's any loose screws or bolts or splinters sticking up? No? You just sat down, right? That took faith because you believed that the pew was going to hold you up. Believing in a lot of things are how we go through our lives. We put our faith on the line when we actually take action and we prove that that thing is worthy of our faith. Lots of people today are interested in the afterlife. People in nearby Lilydale are trying to connect with people who have died, with their pets who have died. There's TV shows, there are movies and games about ghosts, about supernatural things, about life on other planets. People believe in all kinds of things because they want to. But believing in God, who holds you accountable for the way you live your life, is not such a welcome belief for a lot of people. Oh, I just can't believe in that. I can't believe all of the things I read in the Bible. It becomes too hard to believe, or maybe just too hard to accept. This is nothing new. Back in Jesus' day, there was a group called the Sanhedrin. We've been talking about them the last couple of weeks. It was a Jewish council of 71 men, made up of priests and Pharisees, religious leaders, and they began a three-prong attack on Jesus. They sent a different group each time with loaded questions, hoping that they could catch Jesus where he couldn't answer the question well, or he would trap himself, causing the crowds to lose faith in him, to just walk away from him, or their ultimate goal, get him to say something that they could bring him before the Romans and say, you have to kill him. They wanted to destroy Jesus, and that's been happening over this last week that we would call the Passion Week. They're looking for a way to get rid of him. Today we see the second of these three challenges. And as we begin our series, or we continue our series, The Crown and the Cross, we're in the Gospel of Mark. It shows Jesus as a man of action, a man with a clear message and a clear mission. He didn't just respond every day as the day came. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew what he needed to do. And in this final part of the book, 
He's gone into Jerusalem and he's told his disciples, I will be betrayed. I will be beaten and I will be crucified. But don't worry, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to come back from the dead. And he told them that three times before they got to Jerusalem, letting them know what's going to happen, hoping to prepare them. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark is writing to Romans, early believers and Gentiles, and he's writing to us today as well. He's calling us to action. Based on what Jesus said, what should we do? How should we live our lives? How should we think about the world around us? And in this second focus, as he's talking about his death and his resurrection, he's calling people to believe in him, to have faith. So last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians They were the polar opposites. They were two enemies in their thinking, but they came together to pose a sticky question for Jesus. They asked about paying taxes to Caesar. They really thought they would trap him, but Jesus, with his wisdom, stunned them into silence. And the crowd continued to be in awe. How could this man from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, how could he outwit these brilliant religious leaders. As we continue in Mark, in Mark chapter 12 today, the Sadducees come up with another tricky question. They're asking about marriage in heaven. And we're going to see today how Jesus handled that. So if you have a Bible with you, if you're watching online, we're going to have the words on the screen for you. We're in Mark chapter 12, and we have parallel passages in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. Before we read God's word this morning, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this last weekend of the summer that we could relax. And as Jake said, thank the people who work so hard for us. Thank you for giving us work. It was not part of the curse, but it was part of a purpose in life, providing for our families, providing for others. And I just pray, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, as we enjoy this last weekend, that we would take your word seriously, that we would place our faith and our trust in you because you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our faith. Lord, please let us be hearers of your word this morning. Prepare our hearts to understand what you've said and to see where we need to make changes in our thinking and in our actions. I pray, Lord, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So Mark chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 18 down to 27. The Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? 
for the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The Sadducees, for a little bit of background, were the aristocratic party. They, made, they were made up of high priests and leading families in Jerusalem. And they were also part of this Sanhedrin council. The Sadducees, in a way, were like the most conservative group because they only believed that the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were truly God's word. They rejected the writings of the prophets. They rejected the Psalms, all of the other writings that we consider part of the Old Testament. And Israel said, this is God's word. They skipped all of that and said, we're only going to hold on to the fundamentals, the law. And if it's not there, we're not going to believe it. We're not going to accept it. So because they refused to accept God's further revelation beyond Moses in the Old Testament, now they're refusing to accept God's complete revelation in Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come. He's the final prophet of Israel. And they rejected his message. We're not going to listen to you and these supernatural powers that you have, the ability to heal people, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, we don't believe in any of that supernatural stuff. We don't believe in angels. We don't believe in the resurrection or an afterlife. We believe in the here and now, the things that the law talked about. Anything beyond that, that couldn't be explained from the law, they just dismissed and said, that's not acceptable. So here in this very first verse, it says, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Mark is telling us a little bit more about this group because this is the first time their name has even shown up. We've heard about Pharisees and scribes coming to test Jesus, and now he talks about the Sadducees. So he just lets us know, oh, that's the group that doesn't believe in the resurrection. Acts 23.8, the author said, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So even within the Sanhedrin, there's a theological, theological dispute. This one group says, all we're going to believe are the first five books, and the others believe the rest. The question from the Pharisees and the Herodians last week talked about paying taxes to Rome, and that was really a political question. Who should we follow? Who should we listen to? If there's a foreign power here, do we really need to pay them taxes? Now the Sadducees come, and they have a purely theological question, but it has a very odd and very specific test case. They reference Moses' law as the basis for the argument, but they also want to discredit Jesus because he talked about a resurrection. And they want to just 
put their point out there again. There's no proof of the resurrection in the law of Moses. And if they could get him to dispute the law of Moses and to say that that was wrong, then they could throw him out, right? Because everybody knows the law of Moses is the basis for our faith. The Sadducees couldn't find a basis for the belief in the resurrection or even in an afterlife from the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Pentateuch. There are a number of Old Testament verses, and if you read them, you will find discussion of resurrection. If you want to jot them down in your notes, you can look at them later. Maybe we'll look at them in our growth group. Job 19, 25 and 26. Several Psalms that talk about the resurrection. Psalm 16, Psalm 49, Psalm 73. Daniel 12, 2. And Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19. They all speak about the resurrection from the dead. If you are taking notes and you missed anything, um, just so you know that our messages are online. They're on the website. And some of the printed notes are there too, so you can go back and check or if you wanted to go back and listen and see how many times I mess up or say, um, you can count that if you want to. But since the Sadducees didn't believe in any of those extra writings, notice I didn't say anything from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, right? I didn't have any quotations from those talking about the resurrection. They didn't believe in any of those books that I just mentioned. So they said there's not sufficient understanding to believe in an afterlife. For them and for a lot of Old Testament writers, the description of your last place to go is Sheol. And it says that's a final resting place. That's where you will sleep with your fathers. You'll sleep with those who went before you. And really, the only lasting remembrance of you, the only eternal part of you that will continue on is your reputation, your, pros- your posterity, your family, children that follow after you, carrying on your name to remember you. That's all that's going to last past you. So think about that in this story that they posed to Jesus. There were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife but had no children, and then he died. So then the second took her as a wife, and he died, leaving no children. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. This was not a very um, lively family. Seven men, and none of them could help produce offspring. And again, thinking about that, that's the purpose for them to say, that's your remembrance. That's how people are going to never forget about you, is because you have a child who carries on your name. And while this sounds pretty unrealistic, they said that Moses wrote for us about a man carrying on his deceased brother's wife. That's found in Deuteronomy 25.5. Deuteronomy 25.5. And it's called Leveret Marriage, relating to the Levites. Leveret Marriage. That verse says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And think about that. You're continuing your brother's family. This, again, is assuming that the other brother isn't married already. It's not saying take another wife, but a younger, unmarried brother would be expected to marry his brother's widow, to have children, to carry on his name, instead of her being married off to someone from another tribe, or maybe even someone from outside of Israel, we need to protect our family. So you need to marry your brother's widow. Besides the leaving behind of heirs, it's also about the land. So in Israel, each tribe was allotted certain land, and then each family had the land, and it would be passed on to the sons through the family. So if this daughter married off to someone else, that land might leave the family too. So they were, they were protecting what was part of their families. How is Jesus going to answer this question? Their question is, after all of this, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? You can just hear them kind of smirking as they say, in that resurrection you talk about, who's she going to be married to? They don't even believe in a resurrection, but that's the question they pose. So how does Jesus answer a question? With a question. This question is really more of a statement. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Isn't this why you're wrong? It's a, it's a question. It ends in a question mark, but he's telling them, you're wrong. Your question is wrong. Your basis is wrong. Everything about what you've said is wrong. It's like Jesus saying to the New York Stock Exchange, don't you know anything about financial markets? Don't you understand the economy? What are you doing? He's talking to the Sadducees, the religious elite, the ones who've spent their whole lives studying not the whole Old Testament, but just the five books. Don't you know the scriptures? How can you have a wrong understanding of God? Jesus is kind of like slapping them in the face with that first question. You don't know the Torah. You don't understand the power of God. So first he corrects their incorrect view on the resurrection life. You can't pair, compare resurrected life to life here on earth. They're not the same thing. And then he corrects their biblical ignorance by reminding them of a passage about Moses where God describes the long dead, long gone patriarchs, and he describes them as still living. They didn't recognize or accept God's power. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that these miracles were even real. If you think about some of the passages we've read over the first half, they kept sending out people from Jerusalem like spies. Did this miracle really happen? What is this guy teaching? What is he saying? They're trying to understand it better because they're worried. He's saying things that don't line up with our understanding of Scripture. What's going to happen when he shows us up for who we really are? They're hypocrites, and they really are not in it because they love God. They're in it just for power and position. So first, he talks about the resurrection life in verse 25. 
Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The resurrection life is going to be different from earthly life. People are not going to get married and have children, but in some sense, they're going to be like the angels, either without sexual capacity or only concerned about worshiping God. They're not concerned about who they're married to and continuing their family name. Some people have feared that life in heaven without their spouse would be terrible. They can't imagine going through eternity without their husband or wife at their side. And there's other people who dread the thought of spending eternity (laughs) bickering and continuing to argue forever. Is this argument never going to end? Will I ever win? (laughs) This passage is not saying that marriage and your husband and spouse don't exist like you're not going to recognize them, but it's saying really there's no new marriages in heaven. Women will not be given to someone to be married, and men are not going to take a bride. They're not trying to raise a new family. They're not trying to continue their name because they're already in eternity. There are no new people in eternity. No one is born in heaven. Probably that best understanding is that Christians, believers in heaven, will not miss the meaningful relationships that they had here on earth with family members. You're not going to not recognize these people that you loved for your whole life, thinking about ones that you lost when you were younger, or even looking forward to meeting the people that you've heard of, grandparents and even great-grandparents. You'll know them and you recognize them. But your relationships in heaven are going to be so much deeper. The joy is so much further than what we could even imagine here on earth that it goes beyond our thinking and our understanding. The resurrection life is totally different from what we know here on earth. And then Jesus talks about God being the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Verses 26 and 27. As for the dead being raised, they didn't even ask this question, but he's addressing it because it's part of their wrong thinking. Have you not read in the book of Moses? You who only believe the book of Moses, haven't you read in the book of Moses? The passage about the bush, he doesn't mention the specific reference because they didn't have references like we do. He couldn't say um, Exodus 3.6. He just said, do you remember when Moses wrote about God speaking to him in the bush? How God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And in case they didn't get it, you are quite wrong. You're way off. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for centuries by the time that God reveals himself to Moses hundreds and hundreds of years later, and he says, I am the God of your father. Not I was the God of your father. So Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at 
God. Notice the verb tense. How many students do we have here today that have studied English as a language? Some of you have done that. Some of you did it in the past. What's the verb tense? Any of our people under college age? What's the verb tense of I am? Present. It's not past tense. I used to be their God. They used to worship me. When they were living, I was their God. He said, I am the God of Isaac, Abraham, Jacob. Even though it's hundreds of years later, I am still their God. They are still alive. He is the God of the living, not the dead. Hebrews 11, the great heroes of the faith chapter, describes saving faith of the people in the Old Testament. It says that their righteousness came from believing in God, believing that God would save them in the future, not just the present. Each of those heroes of the faith struggled with life here on earth, and God didn't say, I'm going to save you and make your life smooth and easy. He said, no matter what you're going through today, I will save you. You will be saved eternally. And they looked forward to that day when they would see the Messiah. They looked forward to a better country, a heavenly one. They didn't just want Israel transported and the same life, but just a little bit nicer in heaven. They looked forward to a better country. And sometimes we need to correct that thinking too about heaven. It's not just life here on earth, but a little bit better. It's something totally new and different. The covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God that Moses encountered when the bush was burning. This was a God who said, my name is I Am. He revealed himself as the living God, the ever-present helper, the deliverer of his people. And Jesus said, the resurrection is based on this underlying truth that the call of God in a person's life establishes a relationship with that God that lasts forever. That relationship is not just here on earth. It's not just about your current struggles and troubles. God cares about all those things. But it bears the promise that God, who will never end, a God who is eternal, makes this promise and this relationship with you, and that will not even end by death. Marriage is till death do us part, right? It's till death do us part, so that when a loved one passes away, that remaining widow or widower is free to marry again, because they're Marriage has finally ended in death. God says, my relationship with you will never end. And I love the description of our relationship with God by saying, he's waiting for us to take us to the wedding. We're engaged. That's the description we have of our faith. We're engaged to Jesus Christ, and he's gone on to prepare a home, to get a place ready for us to live for eternity. And he said, I'm going to come back and get you. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be ready to go to the wedding? Because that's forever. We're just in this 
engagement period right now. And we think this is it because that's all we know. But imagine those of you that are married, think back to your engagement period, not only how quickly it went once you were past it, those of you that are still in it know that it lasts forever, but the ones that have already passed it and you're on into your marriage, your engagement just flew by. There were so many details, so many things you had to do, but they're all gone because you're enjoying now your marriage. You don't focus on that period and say, this is all there is. Just being engaged is so great. I wish it could stay forever. That's what it's like to say, I wish this life could last forever. We're looking forward to meeting Jesus and being in heaven forever. So what's our understanding of heaven? What should it be? Our TV series, our movies, the things that I talked about earlier, The Good Place, The Walking Dead, Upload, Ghosts, Dead Like Me. There are all kinds of things that are still entertaining to people, things that still people want to listen to and watch and think, hmm, maybe that's what it's like. Some people take for granted that they're going to live an afterlife with God, no matter how they related to God in this life. Oh, I'm going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven, right? The Bible says something very different. It says that those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who deny him as Lord and Savior, will not spend eternity in heaven. They will still have an eternity, but it's going to be separated from God, separated from light, from good, from anything that you would want. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of torment. It's a place called hell. No matter how bad your life is here today, you can't say, this is my hell. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross to keep you from a bad boss. He didn't die on the cross to keep you from having to struggle with your parents' relationship or any of the things that are just hard to deal with here on life, in our lives. Jesus died on the cross to keep people from going to hell. That's how real and how terrible it is that he would give up his own life. That's the bad news. The good news is As he died on the cross, as he rose again, he offers eternal life to all who would believe. He offers a place in heaven. The ultimate truth, the Bible tells us that heaven is about worshiping and glorifying God. It's not about a better version of you or a better version of your life here on earth. 1 Corinthians 2.9, this verse just came up as I was talking to JC and Antonia this weekend. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Our eyes haven't seen, our ears haven't heard, and our mind can't conceive of the good things God has prepared for us in heaven. Notice it's not prepared for everyone, it's prepared for those who love him. The hope of the resurrection is the believer's greatest hope because it provides strength to face our difficult challenges now. And I'm not discounting any of those things as being hard. But God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go through those trials with you. I'm the God who cares. 
Jesus said, cast your cares on me because I care for you. I'm going to go through life with you, but nothing can separate you from my love. Jan read that beautiful passage for us. Height nor depth nor angels or principalities, nothing on heaven or earth can separate us from God's love. Because the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God promised us a home in heaven. He invited you to become his son or daughter, and God never lies. He never changes. What he says always goes. And he's not just the God of people who lived hundreds or thousands of years ago. He is the God of the living. Those people that he talked about in this book are still living, and they're living with him. Verse 25 tells us, in heaven we will be like angels. It doesn't say we're going to become angels. Our old cartoons, our old movies, like It's a Wonderful Life, Clarence was trying to do good things to get his wings. We don't become angels. God created angels with a purpose, to serve him. They're messengers. They worship in heaven, and they come to earth with messages. But he created people to know him and to point other people to him, to glorify him. It says we will have immortal bodies like the angels. We will not be married or give birth like the angels. But the Sadducees didn't even believe in angels. So Jesus makes reference to their actual existence, another correction of their errors. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58, jot that down. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58. Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, and he gives us some important points. It says our physical bodies will be resurrected, and they will become imperishable. They'll become eternal. Illness, deformity, weakness, all completely removed and made whole. Your individuality will be preserved for eternity. You will be who you are now, but glorious, because when we see Jesus, we will be like him. You'll be recognized and still lovable in heaven. You're going to know and recognize your loved ones and people that died before you and are in heaven. Marriage or concern about your past spouses are gone, but our love can still remain. There's no need for sexuality. There's no need for reproduction, but we still retain our identity. So the question that the Sadducees were asking was, when they get to heaven, who owns this woman? Who does she belong to? Because she didn't have any children, so there's no real proof of their marriage. And Jesus said, when you get to heaven, none of that matters. She is a woman a child of God, a daughter of God, standing before God, her heavenly father. Her husband has nothing to do with it. And he stands before God, a son of God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. Who his wife is and who his children are really no longer matter. Does he care about his family? Does he want them there in heaven? Of course he does. And she does too. But you're not going through life Married like you did here on earth. Just living in your own home, only concerned about raising a family and taking care of them because now God is your father. 
our focus is going to be so much on Jesus Christ, on seeing God face to face and not dying. Scripture tells us that no one can see God and live, but in our resurrected bodies, we can stand before God and recognize his holiness, worship and praise him just as angels do around the throne. That's what we're going to be thinking about. We're not going to be worried about the family reunion. We're not going to be worried about fixing things that we did wrong here on earth. Can I go back and tell my brothers and sisters? That's what the rich man said to God, right? He wanted to go back and fix the wrongs he did. And that's such a big part of people's understanding of heaven is once you get there, you're going to want to make up for all of your errors. Or maybe even that's how you get there is if you can just do everything right you'll go to heaven. The Bible teaches something totally different. Nothing sinful, nothing unrighteous, nothing unholy can be in heaven because we will be there and bear the complete image of Jesus Christ. Our desires will only be pure and holy. Our desires will only be for God. They won't be selfish or hurtful towards anyone else. So our takeaways this morning... People in Jesus' day who didn't believe in the power of God continued to demand further miracles for proof. Remember the religious leaders saying, just show us a miracle and then we will be satisfied. And Jesus said, you've had the prophets. God performed miracles all through the Old Testament. I don't need to do anything else. You just need to believe. Even today, there's a huge focus on healings, on special revelation from God, just to prove that he exists. The greatest proof in God, the greatest understanding that he really exists is by your transformed life. When people look at you, do they see a changed person? People that knew you before Jesus Christ and say, wow, I wouldn't recognize you. You're a different person. That points people to God. You can say, this is how that happened. I met Jesus and he changed my life. Or if you've been a believer for a number of years, do people still see change happening? Or do they think, you're done. You made a couple of minor improvements, a couple of alterations here and there, but nothing big is happening. If someone asks you, can you share a testimony of God's greatness in your life? You have to think back to, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, oh yeah, there was something, something big God did for me, but I really can't think of anything recent. Are you crying out to God and say, search me, O oh God, and see what needs to change? What do I need to give up to be more like your son, Jesus Christ? Not only because I want to glorify him, but because as my life becomes more like him, my desires change And my hopes and what I'm looking forward to changes. The things that I want are what God wants, which is always what's best for me. Have you accepted God's invitation? Think of it as a marriage proposal to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. If he asked you to be his bride, would you say yes or would you say, I'm okay? I'm fine right where I am. 
And I know, guys, it's weird to think about being proposed to by Jesus, but it's this picture of marriage that Scripture shows all through the whole thing. It's for this reason that man and a woman come together to become one. And the Bible ends with the wedding feast, the great celebration of being with him for eternity. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Have you said, I can't do this on my own? I'm trying to be a good person. I hope I make it to heaven. That's not the hope we're talking about. The hope of going to heaven in the Bible is secure. It's real. It's I will be in heaven. I'm looking forward to that because Jesus said, believe in me and you have eternal life. You not, it's not you may get to eternal life, it's you have eternal life. You have a repaired relationship with God, your sins have been forgiven, and you are going to heaven. He promises to never leave you or forsake you, even while you're here on earth. So life here is better, but it's looking forward to something even better. Is your view of heaven just about the things and the people that you want to see again. You're looking forward to seeing your grandfather. You're looking forward to seeing even a spouse, as difficult as that is to look forward to. Those are all good things, and they'll be there in heaven. But Paul said, we can't imagine what it's going to be like. But what I do know is it's not going to be about me. It's going to be about Jesus Christ. That's why I'm looking forward to going to heaven. Because I'm going to finally be with him and meet my heavenly father and spend eternity with him. Mark's going to come. We're going to close in a final song. As Jesus answered this question of the Sadducees, he corrected their wrong views about what heaven is really like. And he clarified that scripture talks about eternal life and the resurrection from the very beginning to the end. It's not just a new idea that came with Jesus. God said, I am the God of the living, not the dead. Are you part of his family? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these glimpses into the life of Jesus, the Messiah. Thank you that we can read these words that were written thousands of years ago, but we can believe them because they're true. These were eyewitness accounts. And we can think back to all of the lives that have been transformed and changed when people met you as Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as brothers and sisters to live those lives, those transformed lives, so that other people would desire to know you, would want to know the hope that's in us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.